0: This time on the Out of Water Podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam continues his series on the meaning behind biblical miracles. Some of Jesus' miracles were specifically ordained to denounce and condemn the self-righteousness of the religious leaders and the corruption that had taken root inside Herod's temple. Sam discusses Jesus' view of the temple in his day. Let's go to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith.
1: What is in Jerusalem that makes Jerusalem unique among all the cities of of Israel? The temple. At about 700 BC, God begins to send a flurry of the prophets. So all the prophetic books that you find in your Bible, tons of them fall in this time period where they're like, please, turn, turn, God loves you. Stop with your wicked ways. I mean, they were sacrificing children and fires and doing crazy things. The kings of Israel were. And God says, last chance. I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. But if you harden your heart to me, I will depart. I'm not going to be mocked. I'm not going to have you walking around under the banner of my name doing all of this wickedness in the earth. That will cause more destruction to the kingdom than if I depart from you. And they don't listen. And so in 586, another army comes along and the Lord says, I'm departing. And the Babylonians come and they conquer the city of Israel and they burn the temple down to the ground and they tear everything down. And what fascinates me, they, they gather up all the people, they tear down Jerusalem, they tear down the temple, they bind up all the people, they take them into exile, and they will escort them to Babylon, which is like modern-day Iraq. They take them past the Jordan River, and they keep going. They, they're taking them back from to the place from where Abraham was initially called. And one of the beautiful poetic things that God is doing here is from Abraham to this moment, from 2000 B.C. all the way to 586 B.C. It's 1,400 years of history, 1,400 years of progress and all the stories of what's gone on. And in days, it's all undone. This is what's done. So 1,400 years, listen to the history of Israel, right? You have Abraham who's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of old Babylon to trek to a place where God is going to show him. You have Moses who's delivered out of Egypt, right? Delivered from foreign oppression. That's a big part of the story. Joshua then leads the people Through the Jordan into the promised land, Joshua and the judges lead the conquest of the promised land and capture all the territory. David sets Jerusalem as the capital. Solomon builds the great temple of Jerusalem. The line of David's descendants reign on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem. And then God says, I'm done. I'm not going to be mocked anymore. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in, the Babylonian king, and he destroys the city entirely. And in days, 1,400 years is undone. What happens? The line of David no longer reigns in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple utterly destroyed. The city of David. God is working backwards all the history that he has had with his people. The city of David reduced to ashes. Promised land is once again under foreign control. The Israelites are led out back through the Jordan, out of the land, and they once again become captives of foreign oppression, and the faithless, unlike the faithful Abram, the faithless Israelites suffer exile once again, except this time in New Babylon. That should tell us something about the holiness of God. He loves us too much to make light of the relationship that we have. And so then comes Daniel, who's during the exile, right? Daniel comes, and he offers this crazy prophecy. You'll notice in that song where it talks about the mountains go into the sea. Do you remember that line from the... You find that all over the scriptures, mountains. What are mountains in the Old Testament? In ancient history, a mountain was the center. It was the capital of an ancient civilization. Where do the Greek gods live? Mount Olympus. Where does God, Yahweh, live in the Old Testament? On the temple mount. Like mountains always defined a civilization. And so when it says mountains are melt or mountains are thrown into the sea, what does it mean? God is judging, thrown into the sea. There it is again. What's the sea? It's judgment. He's throwing civilizations and empires into the sea. He's not literally taking up a mountain and throwing it, right? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he sees this statue of a statue with a gold head, a silver body, bronze legs, and then iron and clay, uh, calves and feet. And Daniel comes to interpret it for him. Now this is right at the same, within a generation of going into exile. And Daniel says, you saw, O king, this is a wild prophecy. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and it's partly of iron and partly of clay. And Daniel goes on to explain that these are going to be four consecutive empires, which match Babylon, which is conquered by Persia, then Greece, then Rome. And this is what he says next. Think mountain imagery. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became what? A great mountain and filled the whole earth. What is, what's the stone? It's Jesus, right? Here, here comes these empires, right? You got mighty Babylon, then you got mighty Persia, and you've got mighty Greece and mighty Rome, and this tiny little stone comes, right? And smashes it all to where they're, they're, they're bygone, they're a distant memory. But this stone does what? It just grows and grows and it becomes a mountain. What's a mountain again? A kingdom. This mountain begins to take over the whole world. So here you have this picture of Jesus who's, who's going to become the mountain. But do you know what they believed about this passage in the ancient world? Do you know what they thought the mountain was? Not Jesus. The temple. What did the, how did the Jews believe that you got to heaven? This this is the centerpiece of who God is. This is where he dwells. It's where all the systems of the Jews were and the Israelites, right? So there's Herod's Temple and it was beautiful and I mean it was ornate and I mean they had the architecture stunning and marble streets which you can still see the marble and in, in some places beautiful beautiful design. But you know how you got to heaven? Do you know how the kingdom expanded? They were waiting for a military messiah to come and take over, and then the Temple Mount was going to be the central place of the world by which God then dominated the world out of here. But you know what was taught out of here? You'd better be good enough, and you'd better be an Israelite. And all of these systems that had worked into the culture, what does Jesus think of this mountain? we're uncomfortable saying this. Jesus is not a fan of this mountain and what it had become because men had taken something that was designed to be beautiful and what did they do with it? They lorded it over people. They denied the character of God. They said, you better work and we're better than you and we we set the standards and so you come across famous. Is this going to be the mountain that takes over the earth? Absolutely not. And so some of these next miracles deal with Jesus. He goes in. We're all familiar with the story where he goes into the temple, and he's cleansing the temple, right? He breaks out the whips. He's turning over tape. Why is he doing that? Because men had begun imposing these systems that kept people from him. They were ripping people off. They were barring people out. And he comes in, and that makes him angry. The same righteous indignation that would send the angel of the Lord out to kill 185,000 Assyrians now sees his own people barring others from worship, coming into intimacy with God, the same threat. And Jesus isn't having it. When Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, what does he do? He goes in and he's overturning all of, the, of what they're bargaining with coins and everything for the, the sacrifices. He goes in with a whip, we're told, and he's driving out everything. Why? Because the temple was so defiled, it was so disgusting, that Jesus, and by the way, if you're a temple, he, he turns over tables in us too. It's called conviction. It's a good thing. But he goes in there with a whip and he cleanses the temple. What will happen to him? He is going to be the perfect temple, the design of God that's wonderful, right? Except he's defiled. How? He takes in my mess, all of my impurities. And what happens? He's sold for coins. He's going to be whipped to shreds. He's going to be hung on the cross. So when he's purging the temple, it's a picture of what he's going to go through. He's going to be purged of my mess and your mess. And he knows it's coming. He takes all our junk and gives us all his perfection. And he delights in doing it. And the most important thing, like when you see these miracles, the heart behind it is, I want to be with my people. Come to me. And so there's this really weird miracle where Jesus and his disciples are walking up to go to the temple. And from a distance, they see this fig tree and this seems like Jesus is just being really like he's in a bat He's grumpy today. He's, he's hangry in this miracle. It says, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What in the world? Like, he must have been really hungry. This thing looks healthy. From a distance, you're like, oh, hooray, a fig tree. Look at how wonderful it looks. And you walk up and you lift up the leaves. No fruit. He is describing the temple. Man, look at it. It's so beautiful. From a distance, it just looks so healthy. It looks like this is the best, right? No fruit. What else do you think of? Immediately, when you hear fig leaves... Adam and Eve, right? Hiding from God. What is all this religiosity? It's just dressed up hiding from God, right? We're going to go to the temple, and we're going to make this sacrifice, and so we're going to go to church on Sunday, and we're going to do all the things that Christian people do, and we're hiding from God. We're saying, okay, I've turned in my stuff. Don't don't dig too deep. Don't get too personal with me. I've done my religious stuff, like, shh. There's my covering. I'm hiding behind it. That's what the temple was for many, many, many people, and particularly those that were powerful. And so then, when the disciples saw it, hear where this is going, because all this is orchestrated just beautifully together. It says, when the disciples saw the fig tree wither, they marveled, saying, how in the world did that fig tree wither at once? And Jesus says to them, and now this challenges us, And Jesus answered them and says, truly I say to you, if you have faith, and another place where he says this, if you have faith of a mustard seed, and do not doubt, you'll not only be able to do what was done to the fig tree, but you can say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. How do you explain that one? What's he getting at? Is he saying that literally you can come up to a mountain and go, believe hard enough? As a kid, I used to come up to stoplights and be like, turn green, turn green, and think that like I had some power of the mind, or like if I just believe, hey, that mountain is going to lift up and go to the sea, like that's not what Jesus is getting at. So hear this, what is, what is, because notice the word that he says there, this mountain, where is he? He's in Jerusalem, right? He's coming into the city, this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea. This is what he's getting at. If you have faith, all the systems, all the barriers that keep you from God, the curtain, and then the Holy of Holies, and then the temple itself, and then the outer courtyard, and and all the religiosity, and all the sacrifices, and all the things that you had to meet dot to dot to dot to dot to dot. The prophecy is that this mountain is gonna come out of Daniel, take over the whole world. And everybody's going, yep, it's the Temple Mount, it's this mountain. And think how cool. Jesus is looking at it saying, throw it in the sea. Throw it into judgment. Be done with this system. If you have faith, none of it's necessary anymore. Praise God. You don't have to be good enough. He's good enough. So Jesus left the temple and was going away, and he flat out says it. His disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and they're like, but they're so beautiful. Look at them, amazing. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be what? Thrown down. What happens in 70 AD? The Romans, like the Babylonians, are going to come to Jerusalem, They're going to pierce through the walls. They're going to tear down every stone, every wall, the temple gone, all of the the articles, all of it gone. By killing Jesus, his righteousness transformed us into temples. By tearing down that temple, now his temple's begun to spread. Do you realize that this happened 2,000 years ago, and God's true temples are here? That mountain has taken over the world. It now extends into every single country on the face of the planet. His temple, his mountain. Massive. You are that mountain. You are that kingdom. It's really, really beautiful. And Luke 17, here's another weird one. The Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of the mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. What Jesus is saying, and this is really bizarre, we go to it and we think, you could uproot a mulberry tree and throw it into the sea. What does that mean? Well, to understand that, you go back to first century, and the most famous poet of Jesus's day is a guy named Ovid. He dies around 18 A.D., And Ovid wrote this poem that's called Pyramus and Thisbe, and basically Shakespeare knocked him off and wrote Romeo and Juliet. But here's the story. You have a forbidden love affair, right? So you have a forbidden love affair between Pyramus and Thisbe, and they want to see each other. They want to be together desperately, but they can't. And so one day they get together and they say, here's the deal. We'll meet together at this tomb underneath the mulberry tree. And so she gets there first. Thisbe gets there first. She's excited. Oh, her love, her love. And she sees a lion come. And this lion has just devoured its prey. And it's got blood all over its face and mouth. And she flees, but her shawl falls down. And the lion picks it up and just mangles it. And so here's this bloody shawl. And guess what happens? Pyramus comes up and sees it and goes, oh. I told her to meet me here and it's my fault. I wasn't here to protect her. And so because I've lost my love, he takes the sword and he falls on it and he kills himself. And so then Thisbe comes back, sees him dead and thinks, oh no, I don't want to go on. She takes the sword and falls on it. And both of them die, but before she kills herself, so it's pretty much Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's not all that brilliant after all. So anyway, this is her prayer before she kills herself. She says, listen to both of our prayers. Do not begrudge us whom death has joined lying at last together in the same tomb. And you, O tree, now shading the body of one and very soon to shadow the bodies of two, keep in remembrance always the sign of our death, the dark and mournful color. She spoke and fitting the sword point at her breast, fell forward on the blade, still warm and reeking with her lover's blood. Her prayers touched the gods, for the mulberry fruit still reddens at its ripeness. So, what does Jesus mean here? What is the mulberry tree? In the ancient world, what did it symbolize? Well, keep in remembrance always the sign of our death. It's death. It's their death. It's to to commemorate these lovers. But here's the deal. In this poem, their legacy is death. All they get is a stupid mulberry tree. Like if I prayed and I said, God, just just give me a mulberry tree. <laughs> you're like, that's all I want to be remembered. Like that would be really sad, wouldn't it? And so so when he, by the way, when Pyramus is killed, when he's, the sword goes in, it's pretty graphic, and it said the blood spurts out and turns these, the white fruit red. And so that's what he wants to be remembered for, that their death turned the fruit red, and the mulberry tree was a symbol of their death. And here comes Jesus saying, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that is not your legacy. You can say to death itself, pick up and plant yourself in the sea. Death dies if you have faith Faith the size of a mustard seed. That's the way our Lord works. Like I, one of my favorite stories, when I talk to people who really don't know Jesus or in, are intimidated by the faith or think, I don't want to do that. I don't, the faith, ah. Uh, or someone who just had someone pass on and they're not sure that they're a Christian. It takes a mustard seed, small, tiny, so tiny. A mustard seed of faith to uproot mountains of religiosity, it's not going to stand in your way. It takes a mustard seed of faith to uproot the emblem of death and make death itself die in front of you. You think of the thief on the cross. What did he accomplish to win his salvation? Absolutely nothing. He's standing up there and, and basically it goes like this. He says that the other thief is giving Jesus a hard time and mocking him. And this thief says, don't do that. He is righteous. I'm a mess. We're a mess. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is a crazy thing to say to somebody who's dying on a cross right next to you. So what does he believe is going to happen to Jesus? He's going to come back. He's going to conquer death. He is saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is right on the other side of your death on this cross. He, can't, he doesn't get down and start a Bible study. He doesn't go evangelize. He doesn't help old ladies cross the street. He is pinned to a cross and can do nothing except, I'm a mess. Save me. And what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth. This day, you will be with me in paradise. A mustard seed. I think when we get to heaven... We are going to be stunned at the immensity of God's grace. We're going to be so surprised at people we see there. And probably surprised at people we don't see there. God is good. He's abundantly wonderful. And he takes care. He takes all the judgment. He dives into the sea so that we can have calm, so that we can have life. He takes the death so that we get to throw the mulberry tree and the mountain away.
0: Thanks, Sam. And thank you, friends, for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give us a good rating. That will help others find the podcast also. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website riovistachurch.com slash out of water